Now, if you've been around church for a while, you know that there are four different accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible. They're known as the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not four Gospels. It's, it's one Gospel, just four different perspectives. What's interesting is that two of these accounts, they don't say anything about Christmas. They say absolutely nothing about the birth of Jesus. For example... Mark and John, they both begin their Gospels uh, with John the Baptist, the ministry of John the Baptist, right before Jesus went public with his ministry. So that tells us that when they pick up the Gospel, the life of Jesus, Jesus is already at the age of about 30 years old. But when you get to Luke and Matthew, they begin with the birth of Jesus. For example, if you read the Gospel of Luke, it begins with Gabriel appearing to an elderly couple. They're named Zachariah and Elizabeth. And he tells them that they're going to have a child. And because they're so old, they think that's very funny and they laugh. But guess what? They had a baby and the baby's name was John the Baptist. And it's a part of the Christmas story because he was the forerunner. Remember, he's the one who came on the scene before Jesus to say, hey, heads up. I want you to know the Messiah is coming. So then he appeared to Mary right after he appeared to Zachariah and Elizabeth. And he told Mary, you're going to give birth to the son of God. So actually Luke began the Christmas story even before the manger in Bethlehem. But Matthew in his account, he goes back even further and he begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter one, verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And he goes on and on and on and on and on right up to the birth of Jesus. And to be honest with you, it's not all that interesting. In fact, if you've probably tried to read the book of Matthew, you probably skipped the first 17 verses and you went to verse 18 where it says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. And you're thinking, well, if it's not interesting and nobody reads it, why did Matthew even bother to write it? Well, you'll remember that I said, we have one gospel written from four different perspectives. Well, Matthew was a Jew and Matthew was writing to Jews and uh, he's getting ready to make this case that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the son of God. And he knew that the very first question his Jewish audience was going to ask before they read any further is this, is Jesus related to David? Because if he's not related to David, we can't take him seriously because God promised David that he was going to have a descendant on the throne forever. They knew that that was a reference to the Messiah. In other words, that Jesus would come through the line of David. So knowing that, Matthew, as he's writing this book, he decides, hey, let's just answer the big question first. Let's just get it out of the way. Whom is Jesus ultimately related to? So Matthew, he gives us this genealogy. By the way, let me just say this. In ancient times, uh, the only recorded history that was written was written by hired, by hired historians. So if you were a king or an emperor, if you were a great general and you wanted to you know, record your legacy and preserve your legacy, you would hire a historian to write it for you. And understand, whoever hired these historians made sure that history was written in a way that made them look good. In other words, you made sure that the good stuff was highlighted and you made sure that the negative stuff was left out. But what's interesting is we come to this ancient document that Matthew wrote, this ancient history document. It begins with the genealogy of Jesus and it seems that Matthew goes out of his way to make us question some of the people in Jesus' family tree. In fact, as you're going to see over the next few weeks, he mentions some people they don't even need to be mentioned at all. For example, uh, this should have been a male-only list because when you get right down to it, Matthew is trying to connect Jesus the man with David the man. But in this genealogy, Matthew gives us the names of four women. And to make it even more confusing, of the four women he mentions, three of them aren't even Jewish. I mean, it's as if Matthew goes on to say, hey, listen, this Messiah I'm getting ready to tell you about, he doesn't even have a pure Jewish bloodline. 
And you're like, well, that can't help his argument with Jewish audience, right? And then all these women, at some level, they're kind of shady. For example, verse 3, Matthew talks about Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, next week, we're going to look at the story about Judah and Tamar. And it is scandalous. It is salacious. It is lewd and licentious. I'm telling you, right? And right now, some of you men are thinking, I got to find that story and read it because you never even read the Bible. But if this is what it takes, that's fine. Just go find it and read it. It's in Genesis. I'll give you a hint, right? But as you're going to see next weekend, Matthew would have had a much stronger case about Jesus being the Messiah if he would have just left out Judah and Tamar. But Matthew throws in Tamar. And then you get to verse 4, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and she's not Jewish either. In fact, we know Rahab had a nickname, right? She was Rahab the, three of you that have grown up in church, yeah, she was known as Rahab the harlot, or Rahab the prostitute. I mean, when we get to heaven, we're going to run into Rahab, and we're going to say, you're Rahab, you're you're that lady Rahab, a uh, woman from the Old Testament, because we're not, you know, not going to know how to deal with that, right? I mean, why does he bring up Rahab? And then verse 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And the story of Ruth, it's a great story. In fact, there's a whole book in the Old Testament dedicated to Ruth. But again, she's not Jewish. She's from Moab. She's a Moabite, and all the Jews knew that. And then it gets really crazy in verse 5. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And Matthew didn't even say the name, but everybody knows. In fact, because of our last series on David, you know who was Solomon's mother. It was Bathsheba. And even if you're not a church person, you know the story of David and Bathsheba. He saw her, he lusted, they had sex, she got pregnant. He's thinking, I'll cover this up. So he has her husband killed. So David, the man after God's own heart, he's an adulterer and a murderer, right? We know that story, right? And I'm sure that these Jewish readers were thinking, why did you have to go there? Why, again, why couldn't you just focus on all the wonderful things that David did? But it's like Matthew's just kind of going out of his way as he goes through this genealogy, you know, to twist the knife a little bit. And if he is going to mention women, why doesn't he mention Sarah? Now, there's a great story. Or how about Rebecca? That's a great story. Or how about Deborah the judge? That's a great story. Instead, he mentions Tamar. He, he mentions Rahab the harlot. He mentions Solomon's mother who was, past tense, Uriah's wife. Well, I think it's because Matthew at this point, now he's spent three years with Jesus. He's heard Jesus teach. He saw Jesus heal the sick. He saw Jesus raise the dead. He saw Jesus crucified. Matthew has stood beside an empty tomb. And Matthew now knows that all of these shady characters with all of their baggage, all of their sin, all of their embarrassing stories, Matthew knew that they were the point of the story that he was about to tell. Matthew knew firsthand that sin was the issue that Jesus came to address. And Matthew knew that Jesus didn't just come for sinners. Matthew wanted his audience to know that Jesus came from sinners. And that's okay, because that was the point of the story. You see, Matthew knew firsthand that when you think about Christmas, this really was a story about light coming into darkness. This really was a story about forgiveness coming into a world that had only known condemnation. This really was a story about grace coming to a world that up to this point had only experienced the harshness of the law. And Matthew knew that this story he was about to tell, it was his story. And people like Rahab 
and people like Bathsheba and people like Judah and Tamar. These were his kind of people. They were lost people. They were broken people. They were hopeless people. But everything changed for Matthew the day that he met Jesus. Let me tell you the story. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 9. And this weekend, I'm just going to set up the rest of this series by telling you Matthew's story. If you don't have your Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen. Matthew, this story begins in the little town of Capernaum, which, by the way, Jesus referred to as his hometown. It's a little town on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And we pick up the story in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town, his hometown. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. Jesus saw their faith and he said to them, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now understand, I don't think that that's why they brought this guy to Jesus. He wasn't there to get his sins forgiven. He was there to get healed, right? But Jesus looks at him and says, hey, buddy, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven. Now, why would Jesus do that? Well, you got to read on. At this, some of the teachers of the law, those would be the religious leaders of the day, said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming because, see, they knew that only God could forgive sin. And they just heard Jesus forgive someone's sin. They're thinking, wow, he's claiming to be God. He's blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or say, get up and walk. And then Jesus turns back to this paralyzed man and says, by the way, get up and walk. And that guy gets up and he is healed. I mean, that's a good day, right? By any standards. First of all, your sins are forgiven. But on top of that, you get to walk home with the friends who brought you when you were paralyzed. It's a good. Now, we don't know if Matthew was there. We don't know if he saw those events unfold. We don't know if he heard about it after the fact. But we do know a few moments later, Matthew is eyeball to eyeball with Jesus for the very first time. Look at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And I got to tell you, for Matthew, this is very, very awkward. This is very, very embarrassing. Recently, I was in Texas with a few of my staff and, and our plane because of weather. Our flight got canceled and we had to spend the night. and We didn't have a car, so we took the shuttle to the hotel. And, and then we went down and we were having some dinner in the little restaurant there. And Wes, who is our college pastor, he loves to stir the pot a little bit. So he says, okay, while we have nothing to do, everybody tell one of your most embarrassing stories. Have you ever done something like that? And uh, I have quite a few, but one of my most embarrassing stories is that Laura and I had to run to Cary Town Center. We had a birthday we had to go to family birthday. And Laura said, I'm going to go to get a gift. Can you get a card? I said, oh yeah, I can get a card. I can handle this. And so I go into the Hallmark store and I go right and I pick a card. I doubt I even read it. It said, happy birthday. I took it to the counter. I'm standing there. There's two or three ladies in front of me. And so I'm, I'm a little bored. You know, I have that ADD squirrel. And, um, and so I, there's this big round table there with all of these, like, like a Christmas cake, tiers of, of cards. And every one of these cards, you can open up and they would play a song. You know what I'm talking about? So I'm looking at the cards and I'm opening them and I'm laughing. I'm having a good time. I'm probably irritating everyone else in line. And then I put it back and get another card. Then I would turn the table a little bit and get another one. And I turned the table. What I didn't realize was this was not a table that was meant to turn. What I discovered was this is a big piece of heavy round plywood sitting on a pedestal. And every time I turned it, it was getting a little bit more off kilter, a little bit more off balance. And so finally, I put a card back, turned it a little bit, and the, card, the table flipped. I mean, it just flipped up in the air. Cards went flying everywhere. They're open all over the floor. They're playing about 100 different songs. 
And everybody in the store is freaking out, but that's not the worst part. That's not the embarrassing part. The embarrassing part was this was located right next to a huge glass shelving compartment full of all of these expensive figurines. You've seen them? And when that piece of plywood, plywood fell over, it hit that glass and it exploded like a bomb. Those little chunks of safety guys, whoom, all over the Hallmark store. And women are screaming and there's panic and there's chaos and I'm standing there. So I reached in my wallet and pulled out my American Express. Don't leave home without it. And I went, she said, that's okay, just leave. <laughs> and I said, but I gotta pay for my card. She says, just leave. So I put my card back in my wallet and God is my witness, this is what I was thinking. I am so glad Laura didn't see this. And as I turn and look up, who do you think is standing in the entryway with her hands on her hips? I asked you to get a card. What did you do? You know, with the head bobbing everything going on, right? Most embarrassing moment, maybe. This had to have been Matthew's most embarrassing moment. I'll tell you why. Under the time, during the time of Jesus, remember the Jews lived under the Roman law under the boot of Rome, under the authority of Rome. The Jews absolutely hated the Romans. And one of the things they hated was the relentless taxes that were imposed on them by Rome. There were income taxes and property taxes and toll and bridge and gate taxes and taxes on meat and taxes on fruit and, you know, taxes on camels or taxes on everything. I'll never forget, Laura and I were in San Francisco one time and we went into the city for breakfast. And after I got breakfast, I got my check and literally the taxes were as much as my check. And I made that waitress sit there and tell me what every tax is for. Well, these are for people who don't have insurance. These are for the homeless people who can't afford a grocery cart. This is for this. This is for that. And there were taxes for everything. It was kind of like that, right? But as you can imagine, the problem for Rome was actually trying to collect these taxes from the Jews. I mean, think about this. Uh, the reason it was a problem is because it was just so dangerous. If you're a Roman and you're trying to collect taxes from Jews who are already living in an occupied territory, see, you were taking your life into your own hands. I mean, they probably cut the tires in your chariot and... You know, they, they, they probably egged your house and your kids were bullied at school and people said mean things about you on Facebook. And so the Romans like, we got to fix this. So they came up with this idea. Why don't we find some Jews who will actually, will actually collect taxes from the Jews? And I found this out doing a little bit of study this week. If you were a Jew and you had the money, you could basically buy a tax collecting franchise. You were licensed to collect taxes from the Jews for five years. There was a five-year period on it. And it was very, very lucrative business because tax collectors, you could overtax the people all you wanted to and you could keep the profit. As long as Rome got what was due them, they didn't care what you charged. So as you can imagine from a Jew's perspective, this was about the worst job that another Jew could have. From their perspective, you were betraying your nation, you were betraying God. You were considered a traitor, an outcast. I'm telling you, tax collectors, they had a lower approval rating than Congress, right? And that's why you, often you read in the New Testament, you'll be reading through that, you'll always see tax collectors and sinners grouped together. It's because tax collectors were considered in the first century in Judea to be the lowest of the low. Matthew is a tax collector. And I am sure he's an embarrassment to his family. His own people ostracized him. He wasn't allowed in the temple. He couldn't go worship in the synagogue. 
I'm, I can guarantee you the only other friends he had were tax collectors and sinners. So Matthew, he's sitting in this booth collecting taxes from other Jews, and guess who walks up? Jesus. And he's embarrassed. And to make matters worse, Jesus is followed by his disciples who also hate tax collectors. And you know as they're coming up on Matthew sitting in this booth, you know that James and Peter and John, the rest of the disciples, they're already thinking about what they're going to say, what they're going to do as they pass by Matthew. Hey, there he is. Are we going to spit at him? We're going to sneer at him? We're going to flip him the bird? What are we going to do? We're going to give him the old stank eye? What are we going to do? But Jesus blows their opportunity because it says in verse 9, Jesus looked at Matthew sitting in this tax collector's booth collecting taxes from other Jews. And he says, hey, Matthew, follow me. Follow me. Why don't you come with us? Now, you've got to imagine this scene. You've got Jesus with all these disciples who hate this guy. And Jesus said, hey, come on and hang out with us, Matthew, John, Matthew, James. Matthew, Peter, my guess is this, other than the crucifixion, this had to be the worst day in Peter's life. I'm sure he's thinking, you've got to be kidding, right, Jesus? Where's the camera? Obviously, you know, we're getting punked. What's going on here, right? By the way, let me just say, preachers make a big deal over the fact that Matthew left his, his, his tax collector's booth and he followed Jesus and he never looked back. You've probably heard pastors say that. We don't know that. The story doesn't say that. In fact, I doubt he did that. He had a job. He had a responsibility to Rome. But on this day... He apparently turned over the responsibility of collecting taxes, I don't know, maybe to an assistant, and he got up and he followed Jesus. So he's following Jesus, and he's like, so, Jesus, where are we going? And Jesus is like, I don't know. How about your house? And you know Peter's thinking, there is no way I'm going in his house. Everybody already thinks we're weirdos. I mean, it's embarrassing enough, you know, just walking through town with this guy. I am not going to his house. But Jesus says, let's go to your house. Hey, and while we're at why don't you invite some of your friends to come over? We'll order pizza, right? And who does Matthew collect? Or who does he invite? Tax collectors and sinners. After all, they're the only people that will hang out with them. And then you've got all these religious people who've been keeping an eye on Jesus and following Jesus. I mean, he just claimed to be God. He just healed a guy who had been paralyzed. So they're following him. They see this going down. So they kind of get in the parade, and they follow them to Matthew's house. But these religious leaders, they get there, and they can't go in. All kinds of rules and logistics for the Jews not going in. And, and, and I think it's because, you know, tax collectors, I don't know, maybe they had cooties or something. But it says in verse 11, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In other words, we don't understand your leader. We don't understand your rabbi. We don't understand your teacher. On one hand, he talks about the righteousness of God. It seems that he wants to uphold the law. But on the other hand, he's inside this tax collector's house getting tax collector's cooties. We don't get it. And either Jesus overhears this conversation, and maybe one of the disciples go in and say, hey, Jesus, this is what they're saying outside. And so Jesus walks outside, verse 12, and he says to these religious leaders, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And right there, understand, Jesus declared his mission. Jesus says, this is my purpose for being here. I came for people who are far from God. Now, let's be honest. At this point, Matthew and all of his sinning friends, they could have been offended, right? But they're not. Because do you know what people who are far from God know? They know that they're far from God. 
You ever invited somebody to church and say, whoa, the place would cave in? You know, you ever had somebody respond like that? Oh, no, I wouldn't be welcome there, right? Do you know why? Because they know that they are far from God. And some of you, I'm so glad you're here, but you, you know that about yourself right now. And if I were to judge you and say, hey, you, you're far from God, you would be offended, rightfully so, and you would probably tell me where to put my religion. But you know what? Deep down inside, if you're far from God, you know. Reminds me of a true story. A guy walked into a pet store. Parrot sitting right there on the perch. Parrot looked at this man and said, you're the ugliest man I have ever seen in my life. Guy went up to the store owner and says, that's the rude bird. I'm not going to come and shop here anymore if you don't get rid of that bird or change his habits. Store owner said, I'll take care of it. Next week, the guy comes in again to buy some dog food. And the bird looks at him and says, you are the ugliest man I have ever seen in my life. Again, the guy's upset. True story. And he goes up to the owner. And he says, you got to do something about that bird. I'm telling you, this is my last warning. So the next week he walks in, he looks at the bird. The bird looks at him and says, you know. That's a long way around to say, Matthew knew. Matthew knew. Matthew's probably like, you know, I never thought of myself as sick. But I get where Jesus is coming from. And when it comes to being a righteous person, if that's the analogy that Jesus is going to use, yeah. I'm, I'm probably sick. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And we don't have time to unpack that this weekend. But the Jews knew that went all the way back to the book of Hosea as part of the story there. But then Jesus says this, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that doesn't seem to offend Matthew and his friends either because see, they, they knew they were sinners. And I think that years later when Matthew sat down and he, he thought about this story, this gospel that he was about to write, and as he began to think through his story, he knew that to include sinners in the genealogy wasn't the exception, it was the point. Because he had been with Jesus and he had witnessed Jesus live out the mission, I didn't come to call the righteous, I came for sinners. I didn't come for those who don't think they need a doctor, I came for people who realize they already know that they are sick. And I think that Matthew being a tax collector, I think he knew that better than any of the other gospel writers. He understood that the story of Christmas is about God drawing near to people who have drawn away from him. He knew that it was a story about God leaning into people who had leaned away from him. And Matthew understood that to highlight these problems in the genealogy, he had to do that because see, it reflected the people that Jesus came to minister to. In fact, this is what I believe Matthew had discovered after three years with Jesus. He had discovered that when Jesus came to the earth, he changed the rules about what it meant to approach God. Because up till Jesus, the approach to God was this. I approach God on the basis of what I have and haven't done. Because, see, God will only take me seriously if I've done good things. And God will only take me seriously if I've done my best to avoid bad things. And so as religious people, see, that's why we come with the list. I got to do some good things to impress God. So I'll go to church, check. I'll give a little money, check. I'll serve some, check. I'll read the Bible, check. I'll pray, check. Ooh, there's some stuff I probably shouldn't do. I probably shouldn't drink a whole lot, check. I probably shouldn't smoke, check. I probably shouldn't chew, check. I probably shouldn't date girls who do, check, 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 check. And we come up with all these lists and we think if we abide by the list, oh, we're such good people and God must be so pleased with us. 
But Matthew knew this. He knew, man, if that's the platform for approaching God, if that's the, if that's the basis for having a relationship with God, I've got no chance with God ever. But after watching Jesus for three years, Matthew had discovered that the rules had changed. He had discovered that even though he had probably fallen in every and failed in every way you could possibly fail God. He knew that he had the chance to have a relationship with God. Not based on what he had done, but simply based on what Jesus had done for him. And I believe that as Matthew sat down and he began to write this genealogy, I believe that he smiled every time he got to one of those seedy characters. He probably thought, I gotta mention Tamar. I gotta mention Rahab. I gotta mention Judah and his brothers because they're the point of the story that I'm about to tell. So over the next few weeks, we're gonna look at some of these stories. And I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, wait a second, Mike, this is Christmas, you know. Why are we talking about this stuff at Christmas? This is when visitors show up at church, right? Why don't you, Mike, this would be a good series for you to do in the summer when we're all at the beach and nobody really cares about what you preach about, right? You know? Why can't we just talk about baby Jesus in a manger and shepherds and angels? In fact, why can't we bring back Sprinkle and Dinkle? I mean, when we bring back those two elves, that just really seems like Christmas. I'll tell you why. It's because when the angels announced the birth of Jesus, they announced Jesus as the Savior of the world. And that meant that he was coming to this world to save us from sin. And understand, that is the point of Christmas. Not that God sent us a baby. That's cool. It's warm and fuzzy, but that's not the point. The point is he sent us a Savior. And so Matthew understood that the genealogy, it is the perfect launching point for the Christmas story because it highlights, even in the line of Jesus, our need for a Savior. And this series is for you if you're a religious person. It's for you if you're not a religious person. It's for you if you're a Christian. It's for you if you're not a Christian. Regardless of your background, this is for everyone. As the angel said, it is for all people. And this is my goal for us in this series over the next few weeks. If you still have a tendency to approach God any way based on what you've done, my goal is that you will abandon that approach completely. Because no matter how good you are, no matter how consistently you attend church, no matter how many times you've been to confession, no matter how much you give or how much you serve, it is never good enough. So my goal is that we will just abandon this approach to God. And if you're a person who's afraid to approach God because of what you have done, I mean, maybe there are things in your life, in your past, in your background that you are so ashamed of, you cannot even comprehend approaching God. Maybe there's just too much baggage, too much immorality, too much disobedience, too much chaos, too many bad habits. So you've just given up on the possibility of ever having a relationship with God. My hope in this series is that you will abandon that whole way of thinking because that's the story of Christmas. It's not about what you've done. It's not a matter about how bad you've been. It's not about how good you've been. It's about what he did for you. And for those of you who think that you're righteous, it's for you. And for those of you who think you can never be righteous, it's for you. So my goal over the next few weeks is that all of us would come to a place where we could say with a clear conscience, God, in my prayers, let me just ask you, do you ever not pray? because of something you haven't done? 
or maybe because of something you have done? Did you ever feel like your behavior is such that there's no way with a clear conscience you could go before God and pray? You need this series. God, in my prayers, in my thinking, in my perspective, God, in my worldview, I'm not coming to you based on anything I have or haven't done. I am coming to you 100% based on the fact that through Jesus, you've done something for me. So God, when I pray, when I think about you, I'm not going to run it through the grid of what I have or haven't done. Because I believe that when Jesus came to this world, he didn't come to be my helper. He didn't come to be my coach. I believe that he came to be exactly what Matthew presented him to be. He came to be my savior. And I'm going to just be honest with you. It's more difficult than you may, have, than you may think to abandon this way of thinking. And the more religious you are, <laughs> the more difficult it's going to be. And that may explain why, you know, it wasn't the tax gatherers or the sinners or even the Romans that crucified Jesus. Do you know who crucified Jesus? It was the men and women who believed that they could approach God based on their righteousness. It was the men and women who thought that they could approach God based on their goodness. It was the group that never understood, I haven't come to call the righteous. I've come to call the sinners. Now that's the story of Christmas. And next week we're going to look at the story of Judah and Tamar. By the way, Judah's the one that came up with the idea of selling his brother Joseph into slavery. And you won't believe what happened with him and Tamar. Put your kids in Kid City. Rated R next week, all right? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for allowing us to call you Father. And I, I get this because I'm a dad. And dads get this. We don't filter the love we have for our children based on what they've done. And God, to, to realize that you treat us the very same way, that is so incredible. Help us to get there. Help us to understand that. Help us to get there emotionally. Father, right now I pray for the person who is so tied up, so bound up by legalism right now. I pray that somehow in this series... They will be set free. Father, I pray for the person who can't even believe that they're here today because of their past, maybe because of their record, maybe because of something they just did last night. I pray that you will set that person free. And I pray that we will all realize that we're all unrighteous before you and that it's grace and mercy and forgiveness that enables us to approach you. Thank you for that truth. And make it come alive in our hearts and our minds through this series. In your most holy name we pray. Amen.